beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these pandemic times? The pandemic of COVID-19 and the centuries-long pandemic of white supremacy. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christian folks talking to other white Christian folks about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Just a quick note before I get started that it's raining here today, so you might hear sounds of rain on the roof above me, and also our cat has decided it's a great time to be hunting, so you might hear her howling, which is just her way of showing how excited she is for being a good hunter. So if any of that happens, don't fear. That's just noise in the background. For the next several months on the podcast, we're going to be thinking with you about freedom The lectionary selections over this stretch of what's called ordinary time, though these are hardly ordinary times, follow the origin stories of the people of Israel from Abraham and Sarah all the way through the Exodus to the arrival in the Promised Land. It's a huge narrative arc of journey stretching from Genesis to Joshua. It's a journey of wrestling, of oppression, of liberation, of mistakes and harm, all with lessons to teach us about freedom. In these very much not ordinary times where the possibilities of getting free from violent systems like policing are close enough to taste, we wanna ask, what does it mean to be free? What does it even take to be free? Is freedom an individual or collective thing or maybe both? What do we need to be free from? What do we need to be free for? We're calling this series Journeys to Freedom, and we're glad to have you along. This week, we continue with what the lectionary editors clearly mean to be the story of Jacob. In this slice of text, we find that Jacob has arrived at his uncle Laban's home. Suffice to say, there's a lot that gets skipped over, But here's the selection from Genesis 29, plus two verses I added at the end. 
This is the New Revised Standard Version translation with a few changes based on the work of Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were tender, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my woman, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her slave. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a woman. These are the two additional verses. Laban gave his slave Bilchah to his daughter Rachel to be her slave. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. The very tight editing of this selection does a couple of things. It keeps the focus on Jacob, as if this is only Jacob's story. And it erases an enslaved woman, Bilchah. She and Zilpah are mentioned briefly again in the lectionary selection from Genesis about Joseph in a couple of weeks, but their enslavement is erased there. What little there is to know about Bilchah in the Genesis narrative is invisible if you only read or preach from the lectionary. Interesting choices, lectionary editors. I've been watching what's been going down in Portland with an immense feeling of dread and fear. I imagine you have too, the federal takeover by police and ICE and Border Patrol and federal forces, which compounds the armed violence of their response to protesters by also starting to snatch people right off the street, detaining them without cause or warning, as supposedly trying to enforce law and order whatever that means when it's white supremacy's armed forces doing the beating and the gassing and the snatching. It's a test, some people are saying. This isn't who we are. 
some people are saying. And I observe my own sense of dismay, of shock, of disbelief. This can't be happening here, can it? From 1993 to 2000, I spent a lot of time in Central America with my work with the Presbyterian Church. I lived in Costa Rica from 93 to 94, traveling several times to Nicaragua to connect with my colleagues there. And from 94 to 2000, I would spend at least a few weeks a year in Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Honduras. I spent most of my time in Guatemala and Nicaragua. Nicaragua was only barely beginning to recover from 40-plus years of Somoza's violent dictatorship and then the civil war after he was ousted and the subsequent blockade from the U.S. and U.S. support for the Contras, who were fighting against the revolution. El Salvador had only barely just signed the peace accords, ending their own civil war. Guatemala didn't sign their peace accords until 1996. They were still in a civil war when I first traveled there in 94 and 95. Civil war seems to imply that there was equal power on both sides. But in case you aren't familiar, what was actually happening was deep repression from the government against worker, peasant, and indigenous-led organizing and resistance. Repression all under the banner of fighting communism and supported with millions and millions of dollars of military equipment and other aid from the U.S., CIA and military training in counterinsurgency techniques that led to torture and massacres and surveillance and, yes, people being snatched right off the street. These are the acts of repressive governments. I remember being in these countries, the wounds of that repression still quite present in the landscape, in the architecture, in the economy, and most importantly, in people's stories, in people's bodies. I remember the care with which we moved around Guatemala, the number of armed forces in the capital city, the security of certain places we went. I remember the stories of people witnessing confrontations between government forces and protesters, government forces and people just trying to live. I saw some of the aftermath of those confrontations. I read reports, saw the photographs, the artwork, heard more stories. I held people as they wept for loved ones lost and disappeared. This past Sunday night, after seeing some images of federal forces of repression on Portland streets, I was trying to do my centering practice before going to bed. Here's a suggestion for collective care. Don't look at social media right before you go to bed. The Portland images mingled with my memories of my time in Central America as I breathed and tried to stay present to what was coming up in me. Here's what I realized that I had not before. I remembered that I had a clear sense of being thankful as I traveled around Central America, listened to survivors, visited massacre sites, sang liberation songs, picked up U.S.-made bullet shells. I was thankful that at least, at least, that would never happen in the U.S. With a U.S.-made bullet shell in my pocket, picked up at a Salvadoran massacre site, 
with an arrest for protesting U.S. military aid to El Salvador on my record. I was thankful that at least it would never happen in the U.S. That realization on Sunday night that the American exceptionalism fed to me growing up ran so deep that I still thought the U.S. was superior, even with plentiful evidence to the contrary in front of my own face, weighing down my own pocket. That realization took my breath away. It was midnight, and I came downstairs and started scribbling down notes for this podcast, which I never do. I believed the master narrative, the master narrative that Jean talked about in last week's episode. That kind of government repression, that only happened in other places. And yeah, we should stop it, stop funding it, stop supporting it over there in those other places. But it would never happen here. Would it? I did a lot of listening over the years I spent with people in Central America. But apparently, there were some things I did not hear. There's a master narrative happening in the lectionary editing, too. Not only are verses sliced off here and there, but entire chunks of the story go missing. We spend four weeks in this cycle following Jacob around as he tricks his brother and has a divine vision of blessing and works 14 years to get paid in the form of two women, and then next week that famous wrestling scene. The story, sliced up this way, is about Jacob, Jacob's journey, what he does, what is done to him. A lot gets left out. In particular, the women get left out. This is not to say the full text isn't steeped in patriarchy, because it is. But the way it's sliced up for the lectionary actually makes that problem even worse because it further invisibilizes the complexity of the story. Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney's book, Womanist Midrash, is such a gift for helping us to recover the lives and voices and dignity of these women and the context they lived in. And I'm relying so much on her scholarship here. Sarah, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah from today's story, these are women who make choices who take action, who name, who advocate for themselves, who are also tricksters, which we might understand as a mode of survival under patriarchy, which limits women's agency. All of that gets lost in the lectionary editing. In this tiny selection, Leah and Rachel are little more than pawns for Laban to get 14 plus years of free labor out of Jacob. And Zilpah and Bilchah? Already minimized in the story itself, they are nearly erased. Reverend Dr. Gaffney reminds us that, quote, the collection and compilation of these sacred stories is a response to the trauma experienced by survivors of the Judean monarchy in the face of the defeat of the nation, dismantling of the monarchy, burning of Jerusalem, and raising of the temple. 
These tragedies and their attendant horror provide the impulse for scripting theology." Unquote. So that's to say, these origin stories we're journeying through, though some parts of them are much older than the experience of being destroyed by Babylon, these stories are being lifted up, recovered, crafted into this narrative as a response to the trauma of imperial repression. Modern editing of this into a master narrative only about Jacob's personal journey hides so much of the rich complexity of this narrative, thus hiding some possible answers to that trauma the community crafting these stories was trying to share with their people, and now with us. Like, what's the point of Jacob's story in that context of imperial trauma? What's the purpose of assuring there are actually a lot of women in these stories, women who are often active in ways to protect their survival, their own and their families? There is probably something to be said about survival skills under oppression and a caution about judging what's ethical or moral when one's agency is restricted, when one's community is under threat and some have been, yes, snatched into exile in Babylon. Something to be said about being assured of God's presence and blessing and protection regardless of how ridiculous people's behavior is and how deep and ancestral that presence and blessing and protection is. There's another narrative here, a narrative of survival as a people, as women. That's the narrative we should be listening to. And even under that, within that, are multiple other narratives, or maybe lack of narratives, because here I have to name Zilpah and Bilcha again, enslaved by Laban, then given to Leah and Rachel, who then give them to Jacob. The story allows them no agency. They are given no words to speak. They are acted upon as womb slaves, in Reverend Dr. Gaffney's words, to bear children for barren women. They don't even get to name their own children. And Bilha is even raped by Leah's son Reuben, about which Bilha is allowed to say nothing. Yet they are the mothers of one-third of Jacob's offspring who become the twelve tribes of Israel, the people of Israel beloved of God. Zilpah and Bilha. who were they? What did they think about their situation, about their own survival? What would they want the survivals of the Babylonian repression to know? Did they even care about that? We don't know. They're edited out. In crafting the original edit narrative, the original editors thought their lives, voices, beings were not important enough to include. The modern lectionary editors, by cutting them out even more, silence them even further. Reverend Dr. Gaffney says this about Bilha, the enslaved woman the lectionary editors cut out of this week's selection. After all that she has been through, after all that was done to her, to erase her name from the chronicle of her descendants and their people is to do further violence to her. Courage, brothers, don't get
You may be wondering what Zilpa and Bilcha and editors have to do with my reflections on being in Central America and what's happening in Portland. I think it's this. When I had that realization on Sunday night about how deep American exceptionalism ran in me, or runs in me, I should say, because dismay is still my first impulse. At first, I felt some shame, which is normal, I think. White supremacy culture loves its individualism, so of course it must be all my fault that I'm carrying this around. But then I remember that it was something taught to me, fed to me, embedded in me, a master narrative edited with great care to tell a very particular story about the American dream and all men being created equal and progress and democracy. Zilpa and Bilcha are nowhere in that master, master narrative. They are edited out of our textbooks, edited out of our policy platforms, edited out of our national self-understanding, verses sliced out of meaning-making stories. Nevertheless, they have been telling us all along what this country is selling black children away from their families, stealing indigenous children to put in boarding schools, that's snatching, right? Armed forces roaming neighborhoods, jailing black and brown people for existing, controlling the movement and choices of disabled people, as one of our disability justice staff people reminded us yesterday, ICE raids at work sites and detaining people at check-ins and border patrol storing, destroying water sources in the desert, Quintelpro and other surveillance resistance. Zilpa and Bilcha have been telling us. It's not a test. It's an escalation of what's been 400, 500 years of repression, of snatching, of policing, of terror, of genocide. And now that it's impacting white people in ways it has not before, we are paying attention in a whole new way. Indigenous leaders are noting that these same tactics were used at Standing Rock, but media barely covered it. There was no massive outcry at the national level like there is right now. And I say this not to guilt us, but to remind us, this shit runs deep. It ain't new. Zilpa and Bilcha have been telling us this is how little white supremacy cares for life. Lectionary editors erasing women from the story makes it harder to know what the story is trying to tell us about surviving Babylon. Similarly, the master narrative of American exceptionalism got in the way of me being able to really, really understand even deeper what all those beloveds in Central America were trying to tell me. Not only signs to watch for, like, this is what a repressive government looks like, but also, they were telling me the U.S. is a repressive government. Just because it wasn't impacting me directly did not make this less true, and I think that that impacted my organizing for years to come. What's happening in Portland is terrifying. It's okay to be scared. Like, that's a totally normal response. And if we act like it's new, like it's a test as if this hasn't all been happening all along, 
then we will miss important key lessons from folks who have been telling us all along, this is how things are. It'll be telling only Jacob's story. Jacob, the exceptional and superhuman. That's in a note in my study Bible, that he's superhuman. Jacob, the exceptional and superhuman beloved of God. But Zilpah and Bilha have something to say. Even though they are silenced in the text by the editors, both original and modern, they are telling us, listen to us. We know things. We've been here. We've seen some shit. And we've done even more. We know what it's going to take to get free. For our call to action this week, first of all, yes, let's be listening to Zilpa and Bilha, Black and Indigenous and immigrant cis and trans women, whether well-known or known only in your city or town. What are they trying to tell us about how to survive this moment, how we can wrestle more freedom out of this moment? Here's a hint. Go even deeper in understanding defunding the police and abolition. Second, Surge is posting a resource for how to support folks fighting repression in Portland, so watch our social media for that. A couple of asks from folks on the ground include participating in solidarity actions where you are and supporting Black-led justice groups in Portland. I'll have a list of those in the transcript, and we'll get those posted up on social media, so watch for that. And finally, I'm thinking about the long-haul nature of this work. The wars in Central America ended, but the struggle did not. And the people also survived to keep struggling. So how are we offering care and nourishment to ourselves and each other to stay in this for the long haul? Beyond this hot summer, beyond this November, beyond this pandemic, there is actually a beyond. Babylon did fall. So let's nourish our bodies, especially our nervous systems, with all the things that will help us keep going. For me, I am drinking teas every day with herbs to support the adrenal glands. Nettles, licorice root, dandelion, borage. Those are some that I know, and there are many more. Getting rest, taking breaks. I actually set an app timer on my phone so I won't be able to check my Instagram right before I go to bed. Play, sing, dance, connect with loved ones, wear a mask, rest some more. We need you for the long haul. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Nicola Torbett. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. 
Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And of course, as always, a huge thanks to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice, in all that you do to listen to Zilpah and Bilcha, and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Anne Dunlap. Yeah.